Welcome to Crime, Corruption, and Cocktails, the true crime podcast where we discuss cases that involve corruption and negligence from the people that we are expected to trust. These cases range from the police ignoring protocol to corporations placing people's lives in jeopardy in order to maximize profit. Today, I'm drinking a Malibu Bay Breeze. What about you, Del? I'm having a twisted tea to go with this case, and... On this episode, we're going to be looking at the Norfolk Four, who were Navy veterans that were accused of rape and murder in 1997. They were later exonerated after spending decades in jail, even after the killer confessed and his DNA matched the evidence. This case sparked controversy because of the lack of DNA evidence, the men's declaration that they made false confessions due to stress, and the confession of the real killer not being allowed in the men's defense. On July 8th, 1997, Michelle Moore Bosco was found dead in her home by her husband, Bill Bosco. Bill was a sailor in the United States Marines and found his wife's body after returning home from sea. The couple lived in Norfolk, Virginia at the Bayshore Apartment Gardens. Norfolk is home to a major U.S. naval base, so many other sailors lived in the vicinity. Bill couldn't find the portable phone and went to his neighbor's apartment for help. Bosco ran across the hall and banged on the door of apartment F113, shouting, My wife is dead. My wife is dead. Daniel Williams answered the door, and he was also a sailor. He lived in a nearby apartment with his wife and shipmate, Joseph Dick Jr. An autopsy discovered that Michelle had been raped, stabbed, and strangled. The police found no signs of a struggle or a break-in. They estimated that the murder occurred after 11.30 p.m. on July 7th. The last person to see Michelle alive besides her murderer was her neighbor, Tamika Taylor. Taylor stated that she and Michelle had been together until noon. The autopsy also gave a glimpse into Michelle's final moments. The medical examiner describes that the stab wounds were uniform in depth and close together. He stated this pattern was consistent with one assailant, but he did leave the door open to the possibility of more than one perpetrator. Norfolk police detectives questioned the neighbors and Tamika told them that Daniel was obsessed with Michelle. Detective Four arrested Daniel and after a nine-hour interrogation, Daniel confessed. Daniel said the police got him to, quote, second-guess his memory and added, quote, They wear you down to the point that you're exhausted. I just wanted the questioning to end, end quote. Daniel's defense attorney found no record that the police ever searched his apartment despite his status as the prime suspect. They never took an affidavit from his wife to help establish his alibi. The Norfolk Commonwealth's attorney's office then refused a Freedom of Information Act request for records related to the case. His attorney asked the court for funds to investigate further crimes in the area, but the funds were never spent. This would have revealed the rapes and murders that had taken place in the surrounding area. Several days after his wife's death in early November, he filed a motion to suppress his confession, but the court rejected it. On December 11th, 1997, the police learned that Daniel's DNA did not match the profile of the DNA found at the crime scene. They withheld this information from Daniel's attorney until April 30th, 1998. In the meantime, they offered him a plea bargain where he would plead guilty in exchange for a life sentence. He refused, and they went looking for additional suspects. They found one in Daniel's roommate, Joe Dick. 
When questioned, Joe maintained that he was on the ISS Saipan at the time of the murder. The Norfolk police failed to confirm his alibi with his supervising Chief Petty Officer Michael Ziegler or Commander Scotty. This seemed to be a running theme with this investigation. The police also did not obtain the ship logs or attendance records that show who's on duty every hour. Those records were then destroyed before the New York Times published a story on this case. The assistant district attorney, and unfortunately Joe's original offense attorney, repeatedly claimed that Joe was not on the boat that night. This was in direct contrast to what Ziegler eventually told the New York Times in 2007 when he was adamant that Joe was on the ship at the time of the murder. He added that he didn't believe that it was possible for Joe to sneak off the boat. While awaiting trial, another inmate suggested to Joe that he name other suspects. Joe named another sailor, Eric Wilson. Once again, Eric's DNA did not match the DNA found on the victim. The detectives went back to Joe for another suspect, and he named George, but it was a Navy photograph of Derek Tice. Derek was living in Florida, and Ford went there to arrest him. After being interrogated for 11 hours, Derek confessed to the crime. He claimed that the group of several men had broken into the apartment and each attacked Moore Bosco. But this contradicted the police review of the crime scene and evidence. The apartment did not appear to have been broken into or disrupted, and there was no evidence of wide-scale violence from several people. Tice's DNA was also excluded from matching the DNA evidence collected at the scene. Dick also named John Pauly and Jeffrey Ferris. Ferris asked for a lawyer, which stopped his interrogation. Pauly had a verified alibi that put him hundreds of miles away. At a late August 1998 hearing about Pauly and Ferris, Dick testified that these two were involved in the attack on Moore Bosco, but said he had not seen Ferris stab her. Their attorneys challenged the theory of multiple offenders, but the judge decided there was probable cause and indicted them. Derek then named a seventh man, John Dancer, who lived and worked in Warminster, Pennsylvania, which is 300 miles away from Norfolk, Virginia. He had evidence proving he was nowhere near Norfolk at the time of the murder, but was still indicted on capital murder and rape. In November of 1998, Derek recanted his confession, but the ADA didn't provide this information to Dancer's attorney. Then, a month later, Tice repeated his accusation against Dancer at the latter's preliminary hearing. In February of 1999, more precise DNA testing excluded all seven men. Let's rewind the timeline a bit to look at events that were happening during the same time period with another suspect who was not being investigated by the police for the Moore Bosco murder. That suspect was Omar Ballard. In the summer of 1997, Ballard met the Boscos. On June 27th, Ballard beat Michelle Morse with the bat at the same apartment complex where the Boscos, Dick, and Williams lived. His friend Tamika Taylor took him to the Boscos for shelter and turned away men who were looking for him. On July 27, 1997, which was 10 days after Michelle Bosco's rape and murder, Ballard beat and raped a 14-year-old girl about a mile away from the apartment complex. He was arrested and pleaded guilty to this crime on January 15th and the attack on Morse a month later. He was sentenced to 421 years for both attacks. In February of 1999, he sent a letter from prison to a female acquaintance threatening her and claiming to have murdered Michelle Moore Bosco. Taylor claimed that she told the police to look into Ballard. 
Valor was not investigated until February of 1999 after the police received a copy of the letter he wrote from prison claiming he had killed Morabasca. He twice confessed to the police in March of 1999 and again in April of 1999. In March of 1999, he was arrested as the eighth participant in the rape and murder of Bosca. His DNA was the only one to match the DNA profile on the victim. Unlike the other suspects, he provided details of the crime in his confession that were consistent with the physical and forensic evidence. He added, quote, them four people who opened their mouth is stupid, end quote. Despite Ballard's insistence that he committed the crime alone, the police and prosecutors just added Ballard into their theory of the crime. They claimed in court that Ballard refused to name his accomplices for fear of being labeled a snitch. They said that the first four suspects arrested, although they had been willing to implicate others in the crime, were afraid of Ballard and specifically refused to implicate him. In June of 1999, Ballard was indicted for rape, capital murder, and robbery. Daniel Williams and Joe Dick each pleaded guilty to rape and capital murder and agreed to a stipulation of facts after being threatened with the death penalty. They were not tried before a jury, and they were each sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Joe Dick also agreed to testify as state's witness against the other two defendants in their trials. Eric Wilson's trial began on June 14, 1999. He was acquitted of murder and found guilty of rape. He recanted his confession and explained that he had given it to end Ford's aggressive interrogation. The defense counsels noted that Ballard had confessed to having committed the rape and murder by himself, and that the police had said the apartment was not broken into, but the prosecution persisted in arguing there was a group attack. In September 1999, Wilson was sentenced to eight and a half years in prison. Derek Tice's trial started November 22, 1999, and he pleaded not guilty. Joe testified against him, but the only real evidence was his signed statement, which he had recanted. Despite having confessed at this trial, Ballard denied being involved in the crimes against Morbosco. Judge Poston refused to allow the defense to introduce Ballard's previous confessions from March and April 1999, as the defendant had said on the stand that they were lies. Poston refused to let James Broccoletti, Tice's attorney, question Ballard about his February 1999 confession letter or to introduce evidence related to his other crimes against women, for which he was serving time. Tice was found guilty of rape and capital murder on February 2000. In June 2000, he was sentenced to two consecutive life sentences. After Tice's trial on March 22, 2000, Ballard pleaded guilty to rape and murder of Morbosco. He said he incriminated the Norfolk Four in his associated statement in exchange for a sentence of two life terms in prison after being threatened with the death penalty by the prosecution. The indictments were dropped against Ferris, Dancer, and Polly, and Polly had records supporting that he was talking and emailing with his girlfriend in Australia for three hours during the period when the murder was believed to be committed. Williams appealed his verdict to the Virginia court, but was denied in 2000. Tice appealed his conviction, and it was reversed in 2002 by the Virginia Court of Appeals. It ruled the judge erroneously had not allowed Tice's attorney to question Ballard about his written confession. During the January 2003 retrial of Tice, Judge Poston again presided. Dick testified against Tice again for the state. 
saying he and the other two men of the four were involved in the attack. Judge Poston refused to allow Valor's confession or statements to be introduced as evidence because he said they were not properly authenticated. He did allow Tice's defense attorney to read Ballard's February 1999 confession letter aloud. Tice was again convicted by a jury and sentenced to two life sentences in prison. In 2004, the Innocence Project and three major D.C. law firms got involved in the Norfolk 4 case. Derek's second conviction was overturned on November 27, 2006 by a Virginia Circuit Court for lack of adequate defense. Judge Everett A. Martin concluded that, quote, the police violated the well-established rule that once a suspect has invoked his right to remain silent, the police must stop questioning, end quote. In addition, there was no fingerprint, DNA, or other scientific evidence against Tice. No independent eyewitnesses implicated him. No physical evidence implicated him, the judge explained. The judge concluded it was likely the jury would have acquitted Tice had the confession not been a part of the trial evidence. The Virginia Supreme Court then overturned Judge Martin's decision and reinstated the conviction. Tice filed a petition for habeas corpus with the United States District Court. Habeas corpus refers to a right of habeas corpus that is used to bring a prisoner before the court to determine if the person's imprisonment or detention is lawful. A habeas petition proceeds as a civil action against the state agent, usually a warden, who holds the defendant in custody. On September 14, 2009, U.S. District Judge Richard L. Williams vacated Tice's rape and murder convictions on the grounds that Tice had been denied his constitutional right to effective count. On November 19, 2009, Judge Williams ruled that prosecutors could retry Tice. The state appealed the decision. On April 20, 2011, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit affirmed Judge Williams' ruling to vacate Tice's convictions. Tice was later freed in 2011 after the Fourth Circuit ruled that the lower court should have thrown out Tice's confession. Wilson had been released from prison in 2005 after completing his sentence. He was required to continue to register as a sex offender with local authorities for the rest of his life and had severe restrictions limiting where he could work and live. In March 2010, he asked the United States District Court for the Eastern District of Virginia for a right of habeas corpus challenging his conviction. The court refused to hear Wilson's case, saying that since he was no longer in prison, on probation, on parole, or on supervised release, he was not in custody and therefore could not petition for habeas. The Fourth Circuit also refused to hear his case. Detective Ford, who got the confessions from the Norfolk Four, was indicted on federal extortion charges of accepting payments for criminal suspects in return for favorable treatment. He was found guilty on two of the four counts. After this, the Norfolk Four's lawyers called for full exonerations of their clients. On August 6, 2009, then-Virginia Governor Tim Kaine granted a conditional pardon to Dick, Tice, and Williams, which gained their release from prison. But this action did not vacate their convictions. As part of the conditional release, the three men, like Wilson, were still required to register with local authorities as sex offenders and felons, a requirement that meant they had to frequently return to update their records and had severe restrictions on work, movement, and where they could live. 
In 2013, the Yale Law School's Supreme Court Advocacy Clinic filed a petition with the Supreme Court in order to overturn Wilson's conviction. All of his efforts failed due to his not being in custody anymore. After Virginia Attorney General Mike Herring conceded errors in the initial investigation and withdrew his office's longstanding opposition to their claims of innocence, Gibney vacated the convictions of Williams and Dick. The state withdrew all charges against them. In November 2016, the Virginia Attorney General instructed the Norfolk Police to videotape all interrogations and confessions in cases relating to homicides. On March 21, 2017, Virginia Governor Terry McAuliffe granted absolute pardons to the Norfolk Four. This cleared their names and removed them from the sex offender and felon registers. The Norfolk Four filed a civil suit against the city and state for their wrongful conviction. In December 2018, both jurisdictions settled. The Norfolk Four agreed to $4.9 million in compensation and the state to an additional $3.5 million to be awarded in total to the four men. The unsung heroes in this case and others like it are the countless lawyers and other professionals who work to help secure the release of innocent people from prisons and jails. Their work is very important and critical in the country and others that have systemic racial inequality in their justice systems. We thank all of you. When trying to right a wrongful conviction, there are some avenues that defendants have. And this is a disclaimer. Dell and I are not lawyers. This is not legal advice. It's just some of our understanding of legal proceedings and the law. So we've discussed wrongful conviction in the Julius Jones case, but we're going to look at it again from the perspective of people who have been exonerated. As a refresher, a conviction may be classified as wrongful for two reasons. The person convicted is factually innocent of the charges, and an example of this is when DNA evidence exonerates someone. And the Innocence Project reports that since 1989, 375 DNA-based exonerations have occurred, and that may seem like a low number, but that does represent a total of 4,500 years of time served in jail. And another reason why something may be classified as wrongful is that there were procedural errors that violated the convicted person's right. An example of this is when a suspect is not read their Miranda rights. These rights include the right against self-incrimination and access to a lawyer before questioning begins. One of the most important processes that a person has to undergo in order to try to prove that they're innocent is the appeals process. An appeal is a legal proceeding by which a case is brought before a higher court to review the decision of a lower court or jury. Appeals courts can only re-examine evidence presented at trial so new evidence cannot be submitted. Appeals happen at the state and federal level with the terminal court being the U.S. Supreme Court for federal cases and the individual Supreme Courts of each state being the terminal court for those cases. While we're on the topic of appeals, I just wanted to say it really doesn't sit right with me that you can get an appeal and then have the same judge on your trial on your case. I feel like that kind of almost like defeats the purpose of the appeal. I understand it's not always like the judge's fault. I know that there is like poor um, defense work. There's, you know, the prosecution can use bad like forensic science. The jury can, you know, show bias or whatnot. But I don't really like that. I feel like you're getting an appeal is kind of like a fresh start almost. So why not get a new judge? 
I absolutely agree with you, especially when the reason why it was appealed was a decision that you made as a judge. It seems kind of weird that they would say, well, you did something wrong. Now retry this case and don't do that again. That's a weird slap on the wrist. Clemency is the general concept of actions taken by executive officials in regards to penalties for criminal offenses without clearing them. So this can come in several variations. Amnesty is a part and applied to a group of people versus a specific individual. For example, Jimmy Carter offered amnesty for draft dodgers. You have a computation, which is imposing a lesser sentence for a crime while still being convicted of said crime. So, for example, someone who is in death row can have their sentence commuted to a life sentence. Remission is the complete or partial consolidation of a penalty while still being guilty of the crime. For example, if someone was sentenced to three life sentences and one was eliminated. Reprieve is the temporary postponement of the punishment for a crime. This is usually done during the appeals process and allows someone to overturn a conviction or sentence. This is especially done in death penalty cases. And another thing, when people are seeing like celebrities get found guilty of a crime, but then they're released, this is also what's a part of that. Normally, when someone is going to jail for a really long time, the court will give them time to handle all their affairs. Because in prison, you're not allowed to do certain things like banking. Then we have a pardon. And a pardon is the elimination of a conviction and restores any rights that a person lost as a result of the conviction of a crime. Presidential pardons are only for federal crimes. The pardon can be as broad or as specific as the president wants. The affirmation pardon by Jimmy Carter was a very broad pardon that didn't require Carter to list every individual he intended to be covered by it. Then there are gubernatorial pardons, which are for state crimes. Each governor has the power to pardon people from a crime committed within their state. Just like presidents can't pardon for state crimes, governors can't pardon for federal crimes. Then there are also pardon boards, and they cover all crimes that fall under their jurisdiction. Specific localities may have pardon boards, including states like Utah and Washington. And if everyone remembers from the Julius Jones case, the pardon and parole board um, has a lot of power in his case. And I know I mentioned writing letters to them. If anyone feels so inclined, um, you can go on the Justice for Julius website and your letter or email will go to the pardon and parole board. Many people seek pardons even after they serve their time when they were wrongfully convicted. This is because being a felon is not just about the time you serve. It has long-lasting consequences that can see you deny housing, public education funds, and losing certain rights like voting. Since a pardon removes or prevents a conviction, the negative consequences of a conviction are also removed, with the major ones being the requirement to register as a sex offender, which was the case with the Norfolk Four. I think that's something a lot of people don't realize, you know, like once you get out of jail, you're not necessarily free. A lot of people, especially if a lot of people don't have money or a support system, they really struggle. Exactly. And that gets into life after an exoneration. People who have been exonerated are not given the same resources as parolees or probationers. They are often let go on their own to figure out how to adjust back in society. They often have trouble getting health insurance because being incarcerated is seen as a disqualifying factor. 
they have trouble getting a bank account because they don't have any established residency history, especially for people that's been wrongfully convicted for a long amount of time. And getting a job is difficult because even though they were exonerated in the eyes of the law, people still attach a stigma to people who have been in jail. And we're going to talk about that stigma in a little bit. I think the health insurance thing is so crazy. Why is that? a? Di- I mean, don't even get me started on all the issues the United States has with health care. But why is that like a disqualifying factor? Is that like, I don't know, it kind of makes me think of like pre-existing conditions. It's just like a way to discriminate against someone. Exactly. It's listed as a disqualification, just like pregnancy is. It's like just another reason for them not to provide health insurance. And the sad thing is, because of the piss poor medical care that they typically get in jail, a lot of them need a lot of medical workup after they leave prison. And that thing is really expensive. So they end up in a greater hole than they were before they went to prison. I will say my parents are nurses and they would have like inmates come in as patients sometimes. And they said they were always very nice. They were like some of the nicest patients, I guess, because they had guards. I don't know if it's because of this, but they did have guards with them. Exactly. And people have been to prison. They deal with unique traumas that a typical therapist may not be able to handle. One of these is prison rape. According to the National Inmate Survey, nearly 4% of inmates report being raped at least once, often with the threat of physical violence. This is usually not connected to homosexuality, but the control one prisoner wants to have over another. They usually choose victims who display feminine characteristics or are seen as weak, new, or lack the protection of another inmate. Sexual assault is already one of the most underreported crimes, and this is especially true in prisons. There's obviously a lot more men in jail than women. I don't have like numbers to back that up. But a lot of people do think, you know, like men can't be raped, men can't be assaulted, things like that. But they clearly can. And I'm sure that adds to the stigma of being a victim and survivor of sexual violence, too. And Del, what you just said, how it's not usually like a sex thing, it's about control. That's exactly like what rape is. And that's something else people don't really understand. It's not really about sex. It's about power over someone else. Right. And the stigma of having been raped in prison lives with the prisoner as long as they're there. You're always that target. You're always that person that can be attacked repeatedly. So in a lot of cases, and people have interviewed um, felons and prisoners to find out exactly, you know, what the cultural dynamic is. And it's a thing of if you're not ranked high enough, you become the target for repeated victimization. Another aspect that a typical therapist may not be able to deal with is the fact that felons have a high sensitivity to authority. In prison, they're really regimented and regulated, uh, sort of like the military. And because of that, they become super sensitive to people telling them what to do. And this can play out in two different ways. One, They can be hypersensitive to the point of if anyone raises their voice at them, they cower in fear, like someone that has PTSD, or they can lash out and attack anyone. For example, a store is closing and the security guard is saying, hey, you know, the store is closing in two minutes. Hurry up. While we view that as "Mm, he's being a little rude, someone who's been to prison can view that as 
oh my gosh, what did I do wrong? Or, okay, I'm getting ready to go beat his ass because he just disrespected me. And this is all wrapped into prison culture. And prison has its own unique culture that is influenced by the cultures of the people that's in there and the way that they have to live their life. One person said, you learn to behave, but you learn quickly. You don't get too comfortable with people. They can be deceptive and cunning and want to exploit you. Avoid behaviors that won't be tolerated, such as debt and theft. Protect yourself physically and mentally. Stay strong. Handle your own battles. Be confident and decisive. This quote came from a high-ranking gang member. And he confessed that he would initiate newer prisoners into his gang by having his gang members rape them. That was his way of establishing control and dominance over it. And he said that that's what prison culture was. You're always jockeying for position. You're always trying to figure out how you can be the biggest and baddest on the yard. It's so disgusting and sad to hear. Um, Del, have you ever seen the show 60 Days In? I have not seen that show, but I've seen other shows with a similar um, plot line. Okay, so for anyone that doesn't know, 60 Days In is an American reality show where normal, I guess, civilians go into jail for 60 days, like, undercover almost, to just, like, experience what jail is like and to kind of, I guess, get perspective on jail and inmates and all that. When you were saying that, it just makes me think of that show and how wild some of it is. Like, I know, I think on one of the most recent seasons, one of the guys that was participating on the show so just a civilian like didn't commit any type of crime he was like really starting to get like a lot of respect in the jail and like he even bought like a knife to protect himself and like he was like one and one of the ways they showed how people assert their dominance was like cutting in the lunch line and he was like going right ahead and doing that and then this other woman that was on the show i think she was kind of intimidated by the people that she was i guess like rooming with if you can say that but they kind of like coerced her into peeing for someone so that they could pass a drug test and like get out of jail and she did it and the person ended up getting out of jail it's it's crazy. You know, like we talked about this before, like how everyone thinks like, oh, well, if I went to jail, I would do this. If I interacted with the police, I would do that. But no one ever knows really until you're in that situation. Before we wrap up, I just want to send a big shout out to the leading exoneration organizations worldwide. And this list is not exhaustive by any means, but when looking at the most recent exonerations, these companies have really been the driving force behind that. So they are the Innocence Project, the American Civil Liberties Union, Innocence Canada, the National Registry of Exonerations and the Exoneration Initiatives. Again, just a big thank you to these organizations because they are really doing important work and they really are fighting for the people that typically people write off and don't have a voice to really fight for themselves. Definitely. And if you are in the United States, I believe every state has an innocence project. So if you're looking, if you'd like to get involved somehow, I'm sure you can find a way to help them out, whether it's volunteering or donating, you know, a lot of it's expensive to get testing done and to hire attorneys and whatnot. So I'm sure they would appreciate any amount you can give them if you are in the position to do so. I'm sure all of these organizations would really appreciate that, as well as the, the inmates who are fighting for their innocence. 
We would like to thank our wonderful patrons who support this channel. Jonathan, Felicia, and Marissa, your support means the world to us, and we truly thank you for supporting us and what we do. That wraps up this week's case. Thank you for listening. Let us know in the comments what you think about the Norfolk Four and how people who are wrongfully convicted often have to wait decades for justice. Make sure you click the subscribe button. You can find us on your favorite podcast platform and YouTube every Wednesday with a new episode. Follow us on Instagram at Crime Corruption Cocktails and on Twitter at Charade Inc. Please consider donating to our Patreon, just like Jonathan, Felicia, and Marissa have. This will help us get better quality equipment and bring higher quality content to you. We appreciate any amount you can give. This is Jenny and Dell signing off. Stay safe.